0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Named one of the Wall Street Journal's top 10 nonfiction books of 2012, A Man in His Ship, America's Greatest Naval Architect, and His Quest to Build the SS United States brings William Francis Gibbs' story to life. Wharton Legal Studies and Business Ethics professor G. Richard Schell recently sat down with Ujifusa to learn more about what inspired the author to tell Gibbs' story, what led Gibbs to build ships, and how the builder's firm became responsible for 70% of all ships built during World War II.
1: Uh, So, hi, Steve. Um, I'm here with Steve uh, Ujifusa. Uh, And Steve is the author of a wonderful book uh, called A Man and His Ship, America's Greatest Naval Architect and His Quest to Build the SS United States. It was named by the Wall Street Journal as one of the top 10 nonfiction books of 2012. Uh, It's a personal favorite of mine uh, in doing some research on a book that I was writing. Uh, I came across this and actually ended up Using uh, some of the stories and he, and the, the the personality of the William Francis Gibbs, the the uh, architect of this great ship, uh, in uh, as an example of some things that I wanted to talk about. So, Steve, welcome to Knowledge of Wharton. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, so, I I just thought it would be interesting if we could chat a little bit about both uh, your journey in writing this book and also uh, the the journey you chronicle, uh, William Francis Gibbs and uh, his. Um, remarkable achievement in uh, in building the SS United States. So why don't we just start by uh, giving you a chance to tell, uh, tell our audience, how did you stumble into this topic? What was it that uh, prompted you to write about, uh, about the, this remarkable man? Well, for
2: me, I was always interested in, in um, ocean liners for as far back as I can remember, and ships in the sea in general. Uh, my grandmother uh, was a passenger on the SS United States, and she told me Uh, stories of what it was like on board and she also told me the story of the Titanic, uh, which first got me interested in ships in the sea when I was around six or seven years old. And uh, it was a personal passion of mine. I was a little kid that built models of ships in my parents' basement. And uh, I first saw the SS United States when we were looking at colleges uh, my junior year. And we were driving over the Walt Whitman Bridge in 1996. And the SS United States, once the glory of the American passenger fleet, had just arrived in Philadelphia and was sitting there rusted and abandoned. And I pointed at it and said, oh, there it is, there it is. And my grandmother was in the car with us. And she said, oh, I remember that ship. And uh, I ended up coming to Philadelphia for graduate school and uh, never leaving, been here ever since. And back in 2007, um, I started doing some freelance pieces, and one of them was on the SS United States um, because I had just been fascinated with it. And um, the editor at uh, Plan Philly... Uh, a gentleman called Matt Golis uh, said, well, we've always wanted to have someone write about that. How about you tell us more about the man who designed it? And then uh, it ended up evolving into a book proposal, and it was published by Simon & Schuster after about five years of work. And for me, it started off with the interest in the ship as an American icon, as a true masterpiece of American technology built at a time in the 1940s and 50s when America was at the top of its manufacturing prowess. And as one maritime historian said, this is a ship that was like a cathedral. It was built to last forever in terms of how well she was built. But then I began thinking about what about the man who created the ship? That's what ultimately made the book, is what sort of creative person did it take to design a ship this spectacular and this um, strong and fast? Why did he want to build the finest, fastest ocean liner in the world? And then I began looking at William Francis Gibbs and discovered this man is on par with uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, John Augustus Roebling, who designed the Brooklyn Bridge, one of these American creative uh, individuals who uses the American industrial system, the financial system, and his own creativity and vision to create not just a ship that was built to transport people from A to B— but something to transcend that, to be a floating work of art. Uh, this man was so in love with this ship that he would greet it every time, he ca- every time the ship came into New York. And uh, someone once asked him, Mr. Gibbs, do you love that ship more than your wife? And he responded,
1: you're 1,000% correct. <laughs> what sort of person is this? <laughs> someone who's married to his work, I guess. Very much so. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, um, about the, um, the story that William Francis Gibbs that you uncovered about him. What, uh, what led him to become interested in ships? Well, in 1894,
2: when he was an eight-year-old boy, he uh, was brought by his father to the cramped shipyards on the banks of Delaware here in Philadelphia. And he saw an ocean liner launch called the St. Louis. And she roared down the waves, sending up clouds of smoke as she splashed into the Delaware. The crowds were cheering. The American flags were waving. And Gibbs said, from that moment, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I wanted to be a naval architect. His father was an extremely wealthy financier. Um, he was very closely connected with the Widener family. He was one of the, one of the richest men in Philadelphia. And his father said, uh, that is not a good career, to be a naval architect. And Gibbs ended up going to Harvard in preparation to be a lawyer. He proved to be a terrible engineering student and a math student. And uh, he, had, he ultimately, and this is the defining event of his life, He was brought up in a big mansion in Rittenhouse Square, uh, all the comforts and conveniences of the early 1900s, Gilded Age America. But then his senior year, his father went bankrupt, and the family lost everything. This was about, what,
1: 1920?
2: 1910. 1910, okay. 1910. And Gibbs would later say, if not for the fact that my father had gone bankrupt— I never would have amounted to anything in life. And that, I think, really gave him the drive to reinvent himself from being the poor little rich boy who loved ships into being someone who's saying, you know what, I'm going to be a naval architect and I'm going to do it on my terms. My father pursued this this path and he basically tried to make me do something I didn't
1: want to do. And I'm going to show him I can do what I want to do. So, so, uh, So Gibbs really was a man who... Uh, saw the, um, the dream very early in life uh, when he had this experience with uh, the ship launching and then uh, found the motivation uh, sort of a little bit later while he was in college and then spent the rest of his life essentially pursuing the, the dream. Very much so. And uh, he and his
2: brother Frederick uh, became very close business partners, and they came up with designs in 1914 for a 1,000-foot-long American ocean liner, and uh, this is a time when America was not really building passenger ships, and Gibbs, who actually ended up finishing his training as a lawyer at Columbia, he ended up working his way through law school at his father's insistence, um, said, I can't be stuck in this profession I can't stand. I need to do something I really love to do. So he ultimately finagled two connections. One was to a gentleman called Admiral David W. Taylor, who was chief constructor of the U.S. Navy. Uh, who also was uh, very interested in America building up its passenger and naval fleets at the time. Uh, Taylor ended up meeting this young, very nerdy, very socially awkward young man from Philadelphia and said, this kid has some issues with math, but he has drive, he has talent. And Taylor ends up taking Gibbs under his wing and providing a lot of the training that Gibbs never had and a lot of the support and credentials. But then Gibbs also got introduced to J.P. Morgan Jr., uh, who was the son of the famous banker. And J.P. Morgan Jr. had his own issues with shipping because his father was one of the principal—actually, he was the principal investor in the White Star Line that built
1: the RMS Titanic. Ah. So all shipping stories either begin and or go through the Titanic. Uh, Oddly enough, William
2: Francis Gibbs, when he was designing the ship that became the SS United States, his primary uh, focus was, I want this ship to be able to withstand the same damage that sank the Titanic in 1912. And that was sort of the departure point for ship safety. And he felt that a lot of shipping companies were skimping on safety for the sake of passenger comfort, for the sake of cost saving. And he would later say that, uh, it is almost a crime for a company to skimp on safety uh, for the sake of short-term uh, cost-saving... ...because the potential damage that could happen to a company when you know, hundreds or, in the case of the Titanic, you know, 1,500 people killed... Uh, is definitely it actually makes better business sense to
1: over-engineer a
2: ship for safety.
1: We're we're having a little example of air safety uh, even as we do this interview with uh, the Boeing Dreamliner, the latest uh, technology of the air having not been completely uh, uh, flawlessly designed and and now the fleet's uh, on the sidelines for a few uh, weeks or months as they figure out the battery problem that it's having. So uh, so let me ask you a little bit. Um, uh, I know that uh, William Francis Gibbs was on the cover of Time magazine one, one year in the, uh, in the 40s. Uh, w- what brought him to the, to the cover of Time magazine? Well, Gibbs, uh, by the 1940s, had founded his
2: own very successful naval architecture firm. Uh, David W. Taylor, the famous admiral, had become a partner. His brother was a partner. And they ended up becoming the leading... Uh, Navy contractors, uh, building new Navy ships during the 1930s during the build-up to World War II. And Gibbs's real strength, I mean, as one of his colleagues said, he was a great designer, but his real strength lay in project management. He was very much kind of a Steve Jobs figure who came up with the concept of how he wanted a ship to look, the specifications it it was to have, and then would work very closely with very talented subordinates who were very good technically to come out with the finished product. He was an utter control freak, uh, and he also had a very notorious mouth. Uh, he uh, had a, spoke with the diction of a Philadelphia aristocrat, but had the mouth of a sailor. <laughs> and uh, he um, ended up getting on the cover of Time magazine because his firm was responsible for the production of the famous Liberty ships, which were the first true mass-produced cargo ships, in which America's industrial engine. Was thrown behind the war effort, and this is a time when America could produce at one time a Liberty ship in three weeks hmm. from stop to finish, or from start to finish, prefabbing a lot of stuff off site and then building these ships basically faster than the Germans could sink them, and that's what landed him on the cover of Time magazine. He was called the technological revolutionist. He brought Henry Ford's idea of mass production from
1: cars. To ships. Interesting. And, uh, and I, I seem to remember uh, somewhere in your book uh, that actually he—not just a liberty ship, but he ended up—his firm ended up designing something like three-quarters of all the ships that the Americans uh, used in the war effort or some large percentage. Yes, his firm, Gibson Cox, was
2: responsible directly or indirectly for 70% of all ships built during World War II, all Navy ships. And his firm uh, ended up becoming one of the leading— uh, military contractors. Uh, he loved passenger ship design, but he saw it didn't really pay that much, uh, so he decided to focus on government contracts. He had a relationship with President Roosevelt, who loved ships himself, and uh, that really grew his business. He ended up having employing nearly 2,000 draftsmen,
1: designers, engineers, in his firm in Lower Manhattan by the end of World War II. Interesting. Let, let's let's uh, segue just a little bit. You mentioned Steve Jobs uh, as uh, a, a, a modern uh, person with some of the same qualities that William Francis Gibbs had. Um, tell me a little bit about—Steve uh, Jobs' personality is now, uh, you know, part of the public discourse because of biography recently written uh, by Walter Isaacson. You've—you've— uh, uh, you've, uh, You've gotten William Francis Gibbs into our imagination. What kind of person was he, and and why do you compare him as a personality to uh, to Steve Jobs? Well, in many ways, Gibbs was
2: an engineer with the soul of an artist, and I think Gibbs was someone who had very um, little patience for uh, small talk. He wanted very he, when he was talking. He wanted, you know, he was very to the point of what he wanted. Uh, he, as a young man, when he was just starting out. Uh, as a designer, he felt he was too nice and too meek and he felt that his, pro- his, his ideas were getting bowled over. So in his early 30s he sort of had this transformation where he said, you know what, if I want to get something done, if I want to aim for an ambitious goal, being disagreeable or even being nasty is a way of getting to a greater, to a greater goal. He would later tell his um, his uh, staff, when they finished designing the SS United States, I apologize for how I behaved, but this is like trying to build a pyramid here. <laughs> Interesting. And, uh, and Gibbs was the sort of guy that would sneak up on his designers when they were working soundlessly. It kind of creeped them out a little bit. <laughs> but he was everywhere. He kept, um, he would, he
1: kept um, tabs on everything everyone was doing. Sort of a control, uh, a control personality, but but he knew exactly what he wanted at the end. Exactly,
2: he was he was a very uh, controlling personality. Uh, He once, and he also had a great sense of humor. uh, Loved giving speeches, and you know Steve Jobs is a similar way, very charismatic, persuader uh, for impossible ideas. And uh, Gibbs once said, uh, if I didn't have a sense of humor working with shipbuilders, I'd be dead a long, would have been dead a long time ago. And he says, everyone thinks I'm such a mean fellow because I like ships more than people. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Which is, I think it was a dig at himself, but also revealing that he um,
1: was devoted to creation. <laughs> did, he, did he have the same problems with his family life as, as Job seems to have had with his? He had a very distant relationship with his
2: children. Uh, he and his wife uh, ended up leading uh, relatively separate lives uh, by their, you know, by when they were in, older. Um, Vera was the daughter of Paul Cravath, the famous New York attorney who founded Cravath, Swain & Moore. Mm-hmm. And she was very um, devoted to her husband and his creation. But uh, Gibbs, on one hand, I think relied on her, but then he once said in a New Yorker interview, my, life is a, my wife is a beautiful, intelligent, wonderful woman. She goes her way and I go mine. Perhaps that's why we get along so well. <laughs> so it was kind of a telling Thing I think he was he wanted to create his own world right. and Gibbs and Cox his firm was um, a very closely guarded um, basically under the, mil- the context of military secrecy. Sure, um, you, they were all mazes of barriers um, to get in and get out. Uh, he uh, once told a security guard, um, "Please check the identification of everyone who comes in here." And uh, the next day. Uh, William Francis Gibbs walks in the door, and this is a, this is a story from one naval architect told me, um, and the security guard sees the um, Gibbs in and waves him through, and Gibbs says, You're fired. You should have asked me. For his ID. Yeah. Wow. So I think like Jobs and Gibbs, they want to create their own sort of little creative
1: worlds. And I guess, I guess in the high-tech sense, uh, trade secrets and all that stuff creates the need for that kind of uh, careful scrutiny and security. And in, in Gibbs's world, it was the government contracts and the secrets of naval design and, mm-hmm. and then his own personality that did it.
2: Oh, they all meshed very well. I mean, he, the uh, the naval vessels he was designing were top secret. right? And there were a lot of other naval firms that wanted to get a look at what he was doing. Uh, there was one exception, though. He asked a a bishop to come in and take a look at what he was doing. A bishop, and the bishop said, "Are you sure you want me to uh, come into this model shop and see this, see all the stuff you're doing? You know how clergy talk." And Gibbs said, "That's okay. I'm not worried about you. I'm not only convinced in your character, but in the abysmal ignorance of the things you're about to see."
1: <laughs> well, um, uh, Steve, I uh, I remember when I first moved to Philadelphia, going down to the docks. Uh, here in Philadelphia and seeing this great, huge, hulking vessel uh, parked uh, on the Delaware River uh, and wondering, what on earth could that be? Uh, And it said S.S. United States on the side. And having read your book, uh, a whole area of not just Philadelphia history, but also uh, the history of American business and uh, this incredibly important uh, shipbuilding industry that the United States was so Uh, strong in over the years uh, really came to life. So so thank you for bringing that all to us. Thank you. For more business
0: news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.